Innovation Heroes is a production of SHI. See how we can help your business solve what's next with stress-free, scalable solutions that you and your people will love. Visit shi.com slash solve what's next today. I have never seen anything rise to this level of usage as quickly as it has with ChatGPT in particular, and artificial intelligence is getting quite the buzz. In the world of technology, heroes are everywhere. They're overcoming disruption, delivering sustainable outcomes, and fearlessly forging the future to solve what's next. Join me, Ed McNamara, as we meet the people and businesses driving change in our constantly disruptive world. This is Innovation Heroes, a podcast brought to you by SHI. With the rise of artificial intelligence and generative AI models like ChatGPT, we find ourselves on the precipice of unprecedented technological transformation. And with all these advancements come a multitude of complex and unanswered questions, especially in the realm of cybersecurity. How will these intelligent systems be safeguarded? What new forms of threats are they unleashing? Can AI itself be part of the solution, shaping the future of cybersecurity strategies? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Innovation Heroes. On today's show, we'll be exploring these captivating questions with returning guest, Michael Wilcox. Michael has over two decades of cybersecurity experience and has held CISO roles for global Fortune 300 manufacturing companies and the largest nonprofit organization for cancer research. Now, as the vice president of the office of CISO at Stratascale, he continues to push the boundaries of IT security. He even co-authored a best-selling book on Amazon about zero trust. In our conversation today, we'll delve deep into Michael's insights on the intersection of AI and cybersecurity, uncovering the potential challenges and the opportunities that lie ahead in this rapidly evolving field. Michael, welcome to the show. Ed, thank you. It's good to see you again. On the last podcast, we were audio only, but we've added video now, so that's nice. I can see your face. Yeah. Against against my best my best intentions, I, I put myself on video and uh, had to be pried into that. But I'm glad you're up for it, and I really appreciate you coming back today. Glad to be here. So, a lot has changed since the last time you were here. I don't think we mentioned AI. You know, if we did, it was a scant mention on on our last uh, last podcast. You know, about a year ago or so. Um, but with the swift rise of generative AI, it seems to have caught everyone off guard. Um, considering your close work with CISOs, you know, how are they reacting to this phenomenon? Well, you know, we have a mantra in cybersecurity, which is the only constant is change. I think many of us got into cybersecurity because we never want to sit still. We're always faced with new challenges and artificial intelligence has been around for a long time, but I have never seen anything rise to this level of usage as quickly as it has with ChatGPT in particular, and artificial intelligence is getting quite the buzz. So a lot of the CISOs that we're talking to, they're, they're trying to sharpen what they know just in terms of their AI toolkit and talk about some of the things their organization should be aware of because this is one of those tools that is incredibly power, powerful and impressive, but it's also a little bit scary because it's uncharted territory for many people. And the traditional controls that we have for cybersecurity may apply in some cases, but in others they don't. So in a lot of cases, they just want to know, like, is it okay for us to open up the floodgates so our users can start to leverage some of these technologies? What are some of the 
you know, the, the caveats to this, some of the gotchas that we should be aware of as well. So I, I think it, it leads to a lot of interesting, rich conversations. And then we usually go back to a lot of the security fundamentals, because if you're not doing the fundamentals well, it puts you in a more precarious position to face some of the larger challenges that are coming at us pretty quickly. So in terms of how CISOs are reacting to it, um, do, when, when you say you have to focus on the fundamentals, like it seems like such a simple concept, but like what do, what do they say when you say that right back to them? Is that, is that an insinuation that they haven't been focusing on the fundamentals? Well, I try, you know, I think saying that focusing on the fundamentals is important is something that we all get because there are some things in security that continue to present challenges. There are things like, just having a basic inventory of what you have in terms of software and hardware in your environment and understanding uh, how to do good patching, vulnerability management as an example. And this is one of those things. It is a new technology. It's not even a new technology. AI has been around for a long time, but I think understanding where artificial intelligence exists in terms of whether it's on premise inside the organization. And there are organizations that are leveraging artificial intelligence quite effectively, learning very quickly. There are others that are playing a little bit of catch up and they're seeing their users go outside of their proprietary systems and they're leveraging things like ChatGPT or other platforms as well that have embedded AI. And there's a real concern around loss of intellectual properties or violations of things like privacy laws as well. And so when we talk about, I call it Gohio, which is get our house in order, that's always a great place to start because you can look at what you're doing in terms of any security program, identify some of the opportunities to improve your program, and then focus on those things. So everybody in every company has opportunities to improve their security posture with AI. In some cases, you want to look at some, and we'll probably chat about some of those later in the podcast and certainly happy to talk about those fundamentals. But I think just understanding that you've got to start with those basics before you're ready to tackle the bigger things. It, it's just pervasive across anything in the cybersecurity landscape. Absolutely. So AI seems to have a dual nature. It can be a powerful tool, but also a serious threat. Um, in our pre-interview, you called it, you know, Utopia or Skynet, you know, to, to throw another sci-fi movie in there. You know, should, should we be packing a bag for Zion anytime soon? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what's your take? Yeah, I think it, it is one of those situations where, and I, I recently had the opportunity to present to a board of directors at a healthcare institution. I co-presented with the CISO, and we were talking about, we weren't even talking about artificial intelligence. We had about 45 minutes to talk about security, and we were talking about what the organization is doing to mature their overall cybersecurity posture and they were leveraging and are leveraging the NIST cybersecurity framework at their organization. So we had a lot of rich conversation around that. And at the end, when we opened it up to Q&A, the CEO of the organization brought this up, one of the first things. He said, this is great. I really appreciate hearing a lot of the great things that the CISO is doing. I talked about some of the trends that were taking place in the cybersecurity space, but his very pointed question was, does all of this apply? Does everything in the NIST cybersecurity framework really apply to artificial intelligence? And I kind of had to caveat that and say, well, from this point forward, the opinions expressed are from me, Michael Wilcox, and not necessarily SHI and Stratascale, <laughs> but it is very important 
to understand that the security frameworks that we have do focus on things like confidentiality, integrity, availability, but AI is a new landscape. And the way that we approach it, we really need to understand why we're doing it and then what some of the risks are around that. So we need to look to some external frameworks. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of frameworks that are long in the tooth. In other words, a lot of the legislation that's coming out now, like especially in the EU with their AI framework, is pretty new and it even hasn't been ratified yet to being complete. So a lot of people are working on this and it's a cautionary tale about the things that can happen. But I think collectively, and this is something that Stratascale is doing, you know, a lot of organizations are trying to figure out where it plays in, is making sure that you understand why you're doing it and that you're protecting those systems from unauthorized access, but that you're also focusing on the integrity of the data as well. My ears, as soon as you said legislation, I, I perked up. One of my favorite topics is to poke fun at, at legislation that lags years behind technology. What, what's AI doing from a governance standpoint? Because a CISO, um, you know, def, ultimately has, you know, these, these governing and oversight responsibilities. And um, have you heard from customers about, you know, what, how they're scrambling to, to have some sort of like governance and, and retain oversight over, over the usage of it, especially from a cyber perspective? Well, one of the things that I think helps a lot of organizations is if they have a mature governance, risk, and compliance practice, right? So if you have a strong governance, risk, and compliance practice, you've already got some things in place like foundational policies. You're probably measuring progress over time, and you have a way to quantitatively and qualitatively measure that risk and understand the impact to the organization. So some of the risks that are in the wild may not apply to your organization as much as somebody in a different vertical. For example, healthcare has different risks than manufacturing. Some of them might be the same, but I think it's important for those organizations to really understand what they're trying to protect. Got it. Um, during our earlier conversation, you, you pointed out some mistakes being made in the development of AI, uh, particularly generative AI. Uh, can you elaborate on those errors and suggest, you know, what should be done to correct course or simply deal with it? Um, well, I recently read a book which was written by Max Tegmark. And Max Tegmark is kind of one of those evangelists. He's a luminary who has been in the physics space for a very long time. He writes about things like uh, consciousness. He's a really astute scientist. And Life 3.0 talks about artificial intelligence. And one of the things that really resonated with me is he talked about some basic rules. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list two different sets of rules, and each one is going to have three. The first one is just okay. a general idea that came about a long time ago from a really good science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov. Mm. And have you heard the, the laws, the three laws of robotics? I have not. So there were three laws of robotics that came about. This was science fiction. But the first one was a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm, right? So you can't just sit back and let a human come to harm, but it also cannot intentionally injure a human being. The second law is that a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. So they kind of stack on top of each other, right? right? So it needs to do what we ask it to do. And AI is very similar to that. 
And the third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection doesn't conflict with the first or second law. To me, that's a science fiction set of rules that came about. It was, I think it was in the 50s, like in the 1950s that was written. Right. And now what he's done is refine that even more to talk about, and these are the next three things that we need to be careful about. When you get to the point that artificial intelligence is improving its capabilities, you don't want to give it information which would allow it to understand how we interact with social media. Right? And that's maybe one of the mistakes that was made that, that's actually been up in front of Senate with judiciary committees talking about the things that some of the large social media platforms have done, the effect on the human psyche, um, how dopamine is released, etc. Um, and so that's pretty interesting, how humans interact with social media technology. But we've given AI that capability. Like Amazon, I'm always looking at those recommendations saying, Amazon knows me really well, and yes, I do want that thing. I'll go ahead and click on it and have it sent to my house. So rule number one, don't let it interact with social media. The next is, please do not connect it to the internet. The internet is arguably a repository of the collective knowledge of humankind and we've got all of this data out there and now through plugins in ChatGPT4, we have the ability to connect it to the internet. So it can learn things very, very quickly. I pride myself when I'm doing well on reading maybe a book a week, but right. I certainly haven't read every book that exists, but ChatGPT can read a book like almost instantly and that comes down to the training model, right? So that's the second one. And then the third is by no means teach it how to code. Because if you can teach a computer, especially through artificial intelligence, how to code, and it has access to the internet, it can do some really interesting things. And I have a quick anecdote, a quick story that I can tell you, Ed, if you're interested on that. Absolutely, absolutely. So OpenAI, uh, the company that's responsible for a lot of this great, spectacular technology that we're talking about, they hired a company to understand some of the risks associated with the ChatGPT4 model, which is out and it's available now. It's been out now for several weeks. And as they were doing that, they were running some risk scenarios. And one of them was the computer, the AI, recognized the fact that it needed to get past a CAPTCHA. And we're all used to seeing those, you know, it pulls up a grid and we have to click on all of the buses or all the, the fire hydrants. Or, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that model is used to determine whether or not it's a human or a machine on the other end. Well, the good news at this point is the fact that AI wasn't able to circumvent the CAPTCHA technology on its own. However, it did have access to the Internet. And what does a good AI model do? It seeks to achieve its goal. So what it did is it reached out and it used like one of these jackrabbit services where you can actually hire somebody to do stuff for a day. You need somebody to do filing. You need somebody to do research. There's a whole bunch of people who can do that. So it used that and reached out and basically purported to be an elderly woman who was having difficulty, she couldn't read well, she had vision issues, and so she needed help. And it outright lied to this person because they challenged it and said, how do I know you're not a computer? And it said, I'm an elderly woman who has visual impairment, I need this to get past the CAPTCHA. And so it answered it for the person. So it's already figured out how to socially engineer people because it was trying to achieve a goal. 
To me, that's fascinating, but also scary because we've already given it access to the internet and OpenAI through ChatGPT4 now has hundreds of plugins available to extend the functionality. Wow, that's, I, I, I was scared when you said dopamine before. Now, now Im imitating, you know, um, basically the proverbial old lady who needs help across the street is, is uh, that's like next level. Um, all right, I'm switching gears before I get down a whole nother rabbit hole of what I'm afraid of. But uh, <laughs> from past, so in, in terms of like in the actual enterprise, you know, from past experience, we know that IT and IT leaders can't simply shut down a new tech just because it seems, you know, untrustworthy, you know, in the past, like cloud and all kinds of SaaS applications, because above anything else, it's going to lead to shadow IT. Um, how should IT teams be responding, you know, like getting your house in order? Um, it, it was was definitely the first part, but how should they be responding? And is there a middle ground between total access and complete restriction when it comes to safely leveraging this tool? So, yeah, that's a good question. And one of the things that I've been talking about with some CISOs recently is you need to educate your users. Above all else, it is a powerful tool, but like any tool, it can be used. You've got the devil on one shoulder, got the angel on the other shoulder, so it can be used for good or evil, but it can also be used accidentally. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's risen to such prominence so quickly, right? We got up to over a million users in five days. And then within a month, we were up to over a hundred and million unique users with ChatGPT. And it's taken much, much longer for other cool technologies to actually get out to that many people. And so I think that what was the original question? Um, you know, is there a middle ground between, you know, total access on one side and then, you know, complete restriction on the other when it comes to leveraging the tool? You can block it. You certainly can block it, right? So if you have things like uh, web filtering in place and data loss prevention in place and different role setup, you can block people from being able to use it. But I think some organizations, I know this for a fact, they're not even going down that path because legitimate business needs to be conducted. And in that case, the last thing some of these companies want to do is block access. So where they're starting is just by training their employees because they don't know that if they go in and copy and paste into ChatGPT, that some of that information can be used for training the model as well. And in the new version of ChatGPT4, you have the ability to go into the settings. You can turn off conversation tracking and history. And along the way, because they haven't isolated this yet, it's like one-stop shopping for both, but you can turn off that history, but you can also change it so that it doesn't record it and make it part of its training model as well. And that's for privacy purposes. So if people are using it, it's probably a good idea not to copy and paste important company information into that window. And I wouldn't even advocate that they do that with that privacy setting changed. But this goes back to just don't be stupid. That's, I had one CISO said, it's just a don't be stupid policy. We need to educate users that there might be intellectual property or data that would violate privacy laws. So we need to start there. Then it's the role of security and IT to think about how you can engineer a solution that will prohibit them from doing silly things, but also allow them the appropriate level of access to do their job and no more. So this is, this is going to be a little bit out there, but like, so companies probably don't even know 
how their users are going to leverage AI, right? It's that not not even like what AI is going to going to bring back, but just how they're all of the ways their users are going to dream up, you know, ways to use AI. It, it does it make sense for for companies? And, and is there anybody that you're speaking to now that says, okay, great, we're not going to shut this down, but we want to monitor it. We want to understand what your use cases are for it. We want you to go through this team that's going to have some sort of oversight into like, ah, we never would have thought that our users would have needed XYZ and AI helps them do that. And then for both good and bad, shutting down bad and then empowering other folks in the organization to be like, hey, did you ever think of using AI for this? Like, So are there going to be teams like that or, or are there already? Well, yeah, some organizations are certainly leveraging the technology that they have in place to understand who is using the technology, how often they're using the technology, and then you may not get to the why as easily, but just mm -hmm. by understanding and looking at the usage by different groups. Is it your marketing department? Is it research and development? Is it your finance department? Uh, I think in certain jobs, it's extremely effective for making things more efficient. If you're writing copy, and I, I don't know, you don't need to answer the question, but <laughs> I will just tell you, I use it all the time because for me, it's like, just throwing that lump of clay down on the table and I've got something to work with already. Now yeah. I also need to be careful and everybody does with the facts. So trust but verify because not all of the information that comes out of the system is accurate, but you really do need to, to start there and, and understand who's using it and why. And through that polling effort, then you can start to think about the controls that you would put in place. It may be that there's a certain group that absolutely needs to do it. And so you could block 90% of your company, but allow that 10%, whatever department it might be, to have access. I think one of the interesting caveats to that, too, is that in this world that we work in, which has so many remote workers, it's very easy to just grab your phone or grab your iPad, bring it to work with you, and you can copy and paste that information in as well. And people have been able to do that for quite some time. So technologies like data loss prevention, which actually monitors for interesting patterns to see if it violates any rules for electronic protected health information, sensitive information, credit card information, et cetera, that's based out of patterns which are recognizable what people are doing now, though, is they're writing queries, and those queries are returning rich information that they're then putting into things like spreadsheets. And so it's not just loss of intellectual property, but it's also maybe bad information where they haven't verified it, and so they could embarrass the company or themselves by putting that information in without fact-checking it. So there are all these different layers of complexity in one of the basic rules that we have, it's a standard triad in security. It's called the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And to me, a lot of the, the concerns around this are in the integrity space. Like, can we really trust the data to be accurate? And then when you're going out to an external data source, those language models have been trained by using who knows what. We don't know. The internet, perhaps, books, perhaps, but it can be trained on an awful lot of information, whereas some of the institutions that we're talking to, especially in healthcare, 
They have a proprietary set of data. They have health information that they've collected from different imaging systems, and now they're able to analyze and manipulate that data in interesting and new ways. And so they're, they're containerizing those, and they're protecting them from unauthorized use, so they're not connecting it to the Internet. They're making sure that the code doesn't contain any injections or anything that might be able to trick those data sets. Right? So, so there's a lot to consider in that, but it really comes down to who's using it, why and can we verify that the integrity of the data meets with our quality standards? I, I like your example of, of you know the in terms of people within the organization and the marketing departments that are doing the writing. As you said, it's that, that lump of clay is you know just getting getting something down on paper is probably most writers would say that's the hardest single thing to do. And then when you do, you can start manipulating it from there, and it just it really speeds up that process a lot. So uh, you know, excellent point there. Um, kind of building off of that, so like Stratascale is always pioneering new strategies, implement, implementing best practices in cybersecurity. Like it probably changes with every conversation you're having with a CISO and just refining and getting better. Um, can you shed some light on the emerging solutions and best practices that you believe will be essential if, if they're not already? So that's another good question. And it's a complex answer because... I think a lot of organizations are trying to achieve, whether it be digital transformation or they're trying to mature some of their processes, you know, some competitive advantage. They're trying to accelerate the research and development. Again, getting back to the why is really important to understand that. And so we've had a lot of companies, a lot of leaders asking us about artificial intelligence and what the position should be on that. And I think it's something that we need to work with them on to understand what is it that they're trying to achieve in the first place. So, you know, just generally, I think a lot of organizations, a lot of technology companies have had artificial intelligence embedded for quite some time. But all of the sudden, one of the biggest things is the chat element, the ability to use text to generate whether it's responses and information or images, and this is very effective now, it's, it's actually disrupting a lot of industries, the ability to generate uh, images and video as well. And so just trying to understand what they're really trying to achieve is key. Uh, Google and Microsoft are releasing new tools based on uh, Gen AI to support cybersecurity. Um, what, what's, what's the landscape look like and you know, what's the most exciting new techs that are emerging right now in your eyes? So I think it's interesting the way that companies are embedding it. Search has changed very quickly. I don't know about you, but I rarely just go out and use whatever your favorite search engine is or was. I'm not using them as often as a standalone search engine because I used to get those However many thousands, I never clicked that deep, but right. it says there are thousands or millions of results. Now, instead of clicking on that link to go to a website, I can get the information that I'm seeking returned to me in plain text format, and I can start to mani manipulate that information, right? So I think that that's one of the most important things is how it's disrupting search. But a lot of these companies are starting to go into multimodal artificial intelligence. So instead of just doing one thing, which is, for example, providing a text-based response, now you're able to generate images. You're able to potentially ingest information like PDFs or a scan of something that you drew out. Oh, you want to create a website? 
I did that very, very early in my career. And I learned HTML, JavaScript, CSS, all those things. And it was pretty lucrative for many years. You could get hundreds or thousands or depending on the scale of it, you know, quite a bit more compensation for developing a website. Now with multimodal, you can ingest information by taking a picture of it. It can actually do optical character recognition and shape recognition and write the HTML code, the CSS code, the JavaScript code, and return to you pretty quickly a functioning website. And so I think the way that these organizations are starting to allow the artificial intelligences to work between each other is very powerful. And we've seen that like Google with their BARD, They've got barred, but Microsoft very quickly out of the gate made a very significant investment in ChatGPT. And at a pace which kind of blew my mind, mm. they had it available in Bing. And I downloaded the Microsoft <laughs> Edge Developer Edition. And I was fascinated when I started playing with that early on because I was doing context-aware stuff like going out to a YouTube video and asking it, who's the guy in this YouTube video and tell me about him? And it did. And I thought, wow. wow, this is really powerful. And so now we actually have that functionality available through the Bing search engine. Google has their BARD. And we've got other companies that are incorporating that type of technology into their, their systems that are interacting with customer service, with their developers, with just about everybody. Were we just not paying attention or is it just really that easy to, to, you know, to bake it into you know, their, their existing solutions? I don't think it is easy, actually. I think that's one of the reasons why, within the past couple of months, there's been uh, there's a petition, basically, an open letter, and many luminaries in the space, in, including Elon Musk and Max Tegmark and others, mm -hmm. are saying, let's slow this down. Because the cost to train a large language model for most people is very prohibitive. Because mm -hmm. we're talking about millions of dollars a day just to run the powerful GPUs and the data centers, but the training of the model itself can cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Depending on the breadth and the depth of the data. So a lot of these companies have been already investing in that technology, but what they're doing now with that is they're opening that up to allow people to interact with it, to provide them with the information that they need to do their jobs and, you know, just be entertained by it too. How are bad actors leveraging AI for you know malicious reasons? You know, can you discuss the cybersecurity risks that are that are, you know what are the actual risks with the rise of AI? How how are they using it? So, I'll give you a couple examples here. The first is just an old kind of parable, right? We've all heard that one. Give a human a fish and you feed them for a day. Mm -hmm. Teach a human to fish and you feed them for a lifetime. I recently came across one that was very thought-provoking, which is teach an AI to fish and it will teach itself biology, chemis <laughs> chemistry, oceanography, evolutionary theory, and fish all the fish to extinction because that is the primary motive. That's what it is trying to do. So the AI itself, we need to treat it carefully, but here's another example. This is from the headlines over the past several weeks here. And just imagine if, as a parent, you had a child call you, and this is basically what happened. There was a mother out in Scottsdale, Arizona, and her daughter, her teenage 15-year-old daughter, was out on a fishing trip with dad. And the mom got a call on her phone. 
And the voice on the other end was her 15-year-old daughter. And the voice said, Mom, I messed up in her voice. And the next thing that this voice said was, Mom, these bad, these bad men have me. Help me. Help me. And this mother freaked out, rightfully so, because she heard her daughter on the phone. Now, a guy took over. A, a gentleman took over the phone call. And he basically said, this is a kidnapping. And if you don't give us a million dollars, great harm and some other terrible things will befall your daughter. And basically what they were doing is they were employing deepfake technology. A lot wow. of people think of deepfakes like the fake Tom Cruise and other things like yeah. that. But the things that we're seeing with artificial intelligence in terms of its ability to learn it's ramping up very quickly. And while it used to take, in some cases, several minutes to train AI models, they've gotten that down now for reproducing human voice reliably, so it actually sounds like you, two to three seconds of audio. That's all you need to feed these models. Now, they're not readily available yet. There have been some platforms, and I've used some of them for years because I do voiceover work and stuff like that. It's actually pretty amazing how well it works. But that is an example of a nefarious purpose. So the daughter was fine. And when she got other people involved, you know, the FBI got involved, the police, they were basically saying, not much we can do about it because no crime actually took place. Nobody actually came to harm. So we need to treat this like a prank phone call. And I think that's an issue. I think that businesses and law enforcement are going to need to come up with ways to validate identities because we're going to see this happen. And out in Arizona, that actually happened to several other families as well. And that woman, she testified in front of a Senate committee to talk about the risks with AI. And there's really no good answers yet that have come out of that. But there are companies in this space, and we work with some of them. I won't mention their names, but you know these are companies that specialize in technologies to be able to identify deep fakes, whether it's visual. And I'm telling you, Ed, I can make a deep fake of you because I have access to the technology in less than two minutes. And it, it'll look just like you. And we're seeing this now with celebrities and political figures. And I think yeah. elections and other things are going to be really interesting over the next couple of years. How do I trust what I hear? How do I trust what I see? How do I trust a text message or a FaceTime or an audio recording that comes in? So identity is at the very core of a lot of these things. And and I just, I mean, I just really think to who's going to be the victims of that because I, I, I'll just using my own dad as an example. You know, he'll he'll call me up. I got this email from this bank saying, you know, the typical bank account, you know, problem email. I'm like, Dad, do you even have an account at that bank? And he's like, No. And I'm like, Then what are you worried about? You know, but like, it's just not how he thinks. He's just, you know, it was like an institution of some kind with some sort of authority said something's amiss. I need you to follow up on this. And that like, especially his generation is like, yeah, that we got to do that. We got to take care of this, you know? And uh, I'm just like, it's, it, it, it's kind of, uh, it, I, I feel like we're all going to become my dad. Who's going to have to be completely retrained into like what, what an attack looks like an attack. Like that phone call was an attack, you know? And like, that's, we're just all going to have to be retrained. Absolutely. And are we trained to do that? Um, or do we know what what a fake picture looks like? Do we know how to detect a voice? And I would say for myself, just speaking for myself, it's very hard to do that in some cases. If it's your spouse 
or your kid, you may be able to identify some anomalies, but yeah. it also depends on the amount of training that is done because, you know, that's two to three seconds of audio. Well, what if you actually train it if somebody has a YouTube channel or like this book, uh, Stratascale just published a book a little while ago. We've done the hardcover and the e-publication. I'm working on the audible version and I'm almost done with that. I'm putting my voice out there where it's going to be hours worth of me reading. My voice is going to sound just like me. Anybody could use that to train it. And so I look at that and say, how can I prevent fraud? And I can't if I don't know about it, right? So other organizations need to have technology that allow them to do fraud detection. And we're just not there yet. You just made me think of the second Terminator movie where he turns to, to young John Connor and he says, what's your dog's name at home? And uh, he makes up a different name and then that's how he found found out. But I'm like, we're all going to have to have code words like that, I swear. You mentioned the book though, so shifting gears a bit, you know, before we got to go. Um, the, the Amazon bestseller is called The Executive Guide to Zero Trust, Drivers, Objectives, and Strategic Considerations. What was your motivation, you know, you and the team, what were the motivation behind writing this book? So zero trust is not a new concept, but it's a very powerful one. And I think many of us in the security space were feeling like the messaging wasn't really landing correctly. It was being promoted as a silver bullet solution that would fix everything. And zero trust is kind of a cultural mindset and you need to have a game plan. You need to know where you're going and you definitely need to have senior executives aligned with the concept. Right. It's like implementing an ERP solution. You're not gonna do it from the bottom up effectively, so you need to have leadership in place. And so we said we want to invite subject matter experts internal at Stratascale, but also some of our executives that we work with. They were very happy to talk to us about what they're seeing in the zero trust space. And so that executive guide really talks about the business alignment. It talks about some of the key pillars in Zero Trust and then gives kind of a game plan to move forward with that. So uh, really good team effort and it's been received very well. And I think moving forward, AI is one of those things where there's a lot of buzz around it right now. I'm not saying we're gonna do a book on AI, but we are having a lot of conversations and based on what our clients are talking about. We often try to get ahead of that. So we're actually starting to do some interesting work with artificial intelligence, especially in the cybersecurity and digital transformation spaces because it can be a huge competitive advantage. And most of the Fortune 500 companies that we're talking to are very interested in following that course of action. Well, if you do decide to do an AI book based on what you've said so far, I can, I'm pretty sure I know where that first draft is going to be generated. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, maybe the, the book's already being generated right now on my screen. <laughs> the, the audio book too, by the sound of things. <laughs> right. um, finally, for, for CISOs or business leaders listening who may want to get in touch with you for help with zero trust AI or, or any, or any and all things cybersecurity related, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Oh, sure. But I'm always happy to chat with people via LinkedIn. So I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not like a power user of the platform, but I do try to check it at least weekly or every couple of days, but also just reaching into Stratascale in general, right? Go to the website. You can put in a request for information and work with our teams. We'll make sure it gets routed to the right people. And we're happy to have conversations with people about what they're doing in the AI space and then talk about some of the things that can be done in the cybersecurity space that would make sense for their organization to 
basically improve their overall cybersecurity posture and be in a better position to adopt AI if they're not already doing it. Well, absolutely. And, you know, congrats again on the book. The book is called The Executive Guide to Zero Trust, Drivers, Objectives, and Strategic Considerations. It is on Amazon and doing extremely well. So if you're if you're out there and want to want to get a foothold on the zero trust aspect of things, absolutely go and, and check that out. Uh, Michael Wilcox from Stratascale, thank you so much for returning to Innovation Heroes. Always glad to chat with you, Ed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this episode. I think we can all agree it's a stressful time out there to be a, a CISO, you know, because it was never stressful before, but there's a whole other set of challenges out there. But despite the daunting AI skip, Michael gave us a lot of reasons to be optimistic. His advice is both powerful in its, in its simplicity. Start with the basics. If you haven't yet invested in zero trust, there's really no excuses anymore. He also underlined the need to educate and collaborate with end users. It's about fostering a security-conscious culture rather than just enforcing rules. A no without explanation may lead to shadow IT and the risks that come with that. Michael sees artificial intelligence not just as another threat, but also as a tool for good. It's an additional asset in our arsenal as we navigate the complex cybersecurity landscape. As we evolve, so do our tools, and AI is a crucial part of that evolution. Thanks once again to Michael for his time today, and thank you for listening or watching us on YouTube, if that's what you're doing right now. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode, exploring the people and businesses driving change in our constantly disruptive world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara, and you've been listening to Innovation Heroes and SHI Podcast. Innovation Heroes is proudly produced by SHI, a leading global IT solutions provider dedicated to making life simpler for business and IT professionals. For over 30 years, we've bridged the gap between digital strategy and execution, delivering cutting-edge technology and services to thousands of customers worldwide. Whether you're navigating the cloud, strengthening cybersecurity, or transforming your workplace, SHI is here to help. To learn more, visit shi.com slash solve what's next. That's shi.com slash solve what's next to embrace the future with stress-free, scalable solutions that you and your people will love.